On this week's episode of the Life Design Podcast, we talked to Alex Schutman. He is the CEO of Akamai. Okay, I can't pronounce that. I don't know why. Akamai. But he's he's headed up huge, huge corporations. But we actually don't really talk about that at all. No. Um, but very, very successful professional, but really truly, I just, you know, there's there's times when you meet people or talk to people and they are humble and you feel the authenticity behind it and the genuineness. And I just felt like we were talking to a very genuine, authentic, vulnerable person who also just happens to have been by world standards, extremely successful in life. So I just enjoyed it. It was just an enjoyable conversation. Yeah. I've known Alex for over 15 years and I can honestly say there there's, I can't think of offhand sitting here, uh, someone that I've been able to work with, work alongside that I respect more, Mm. uh, than Alex. And I mean, even just me reaching out to him saying, Hey, we want to get you on the podcast. I don't think we've really interacted for probably two years and it was an instant, Hey, so good to hear from you. And and to your point, it's not that, you know, inauthentic he's as authentic and as humble and at the same time uh very thoughtful um very intelligent i don't know he's just a great dude just a really great dude really kind of covered a lot of things and and he he's he's got a great he's not 1969 corvette stingray convertible that it's beautiful i had a saturn once with a spoiler (laughs) yes not not as cool i'm sorry so yeah, and we talked about their adoption and their and family and all kinds of fun things. So yeah. I, you know, just I know our audience will enjoy it. Lots of um I enjoy too when I walk away from these things. And I feel like every person that we talk to always gives me stuff to just just think on for a while. So I'll be going back out into the garden, the never-ending garden, and gonna. I think maybe just we should do a podcast while you're gardening. Oh, we'll just interview <laughs> you and talk about the weeds, oh. you know. So anyway, no, enjoy uh, Alex, full of wisdom, a lot of really good nuggets in there for you to take away. Again, we thank you for listening to the podcast. If you uh, like it, please feel free to leave us a review or share it with a friend. But most importantly, enjoy this episode with our friend, Alex Schumann. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Life Design Podcast. I'm Carlos. And I'm Suzanne. And we are glad to have someone that I have had the privilege of knowing for, I think, over a decade. Uh, my my apologies for that, Alex. But um, Alex Schutman, welcome to the Life Design Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Carlos. It's great to see you. I think it's more than a decade. And uh, Suzanne, thanks for having me. Yeah, so Alex, we go way back uh, in the in the marketing sphere. 
I was telling Suzanne, I didn't have much interaction with you, but I think we go back to the days of BMC software. Yep. You you were leading sales. So that's, <clears throat> yeah, that is more than a decade. That's about 16 years ago, mm-hmm. which is, or, or more so, which mm-hmm. is hard to think about. But um, I've always, always been a fan of yours. Um, I, I love how you operate, how you interact, um, how you lead. And so I, I encourage anybody who's listening to this to follow Alex. Um, his views on leadership are fantastic. But one of the things I want to talk about first, Alex, is you've accomplished a lot professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, you're the CEO of a company. You've been the CEO of several companies. You've, you've led them through uh, acquisitions. Going back to our, probably the most interaction we had was your days at Eloqua, which ultimately sold to Oracle. And despite all of that, I know that that's not how you define success, Mm. which to me is a rarity, especially with the professional success that you've had. So Mm. talk to our audience a little bit about what success looks like for you and how you define it. Um, I can't remember if I read this or heard it from somebody, but... um, it's, it's stuck to me many years ago, which is uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people set goals in life, but a few people commit to living a great story. Mm. And that, that kind of changed a lot of thinking. And so if I start thinking about um, a, a great life is like a great story, um, and if I want to live a great story, uh, then lots of things get put in perspective, right? Because if you think about the greatest story ever told, it's somebody who overcomes something to get what they want. And so uh, in all stories, you know, no, no story would be a good story if there wasn't uh, tragedy as well as triumph. And so um, that doesn't mean that when tragedy happens, I want it to happen and I'm excited about it and I'm asking for it. But for me, if I can just see everything that's happening in my life in terms of, okay, what, what part is this playing in what I hope is going to be a great story? And, and not necessarily a story like I'm going to tell somebody else, but just for me that, that life is a great story. Hmm. So where does, where does that story have you now? Um, it's interesting that you say that, uh, uh, I have, uh, five great friends, but it's five of us together. We've known each other for a lot of years. Um, and we actually all keep a journal together Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the journal, uh, is at least for mine, it's over a million words long. And um, this, this uh, past weekend, I was finishing a letter to my oldest daughter who's graduating from high school. And to, to write the letter, I went back during her life and just tried to find some journal entries that kind of told me who she was. And, and that's a 10-year span because she's adopted. And uh, I kind of got through reading some of the 10 years. And I told my friends this morning, I'm like, that period of time should be called the 10 year test because there's some things I don't want to have happen again, but there's some glorious things too. Uh, but what's interesting about that is uh, um, 
you know, if, if, if you think about the very first words that, uh, that Jesus ever said, uh, when, when it was clear that he was in his ministry in, uh, in John one, I won't get it right, but, but he, he turns and says, uh, what do you want? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so you go through a 10 year test and then you ask yourself the question, okay, so now what do you want? You want another test or you don't want that again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's very interesting. Well, congrats to your daughter. That's a, that's a fun time. She, she decided what she's doing next year. She is going to take, uh, so she was accepted to George Mason, which is awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she got it uh, in their honors program and she got a scholarship. So that's awesome. And it's all of her grit that, that did that, but she's also going to take a year and uh, take a mission trip and go to four different countries wow. uh, around the world. And, and so that's pretty cool too. And, um, she raised all the money herself. She wow. said, Dad, you can't write a check. I'm going to raise the money. And, uh, so that's what she's going to do next. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love it. And I love that you guys are supportive of that. That's amazing. That'll what a life-changing experience and growth for her. And yeah. wow. That's, that's, I need to hear more about that. I, I, I was going to say next year, we should have her on the podcast right? and have her way more interesting than mine. <laughs> what a great thing. I but, love it. And so speaking of your daughter, I, I know that your family is your priority. I, Carlos will, I'm, I'm the researcher in this partnership and he'll send me links of people that we're going to interview. And I clicked on a link he sent and it was your Facebook page, which is kind of unusual. I don't think you do that a whole lot, but so I just, I mean, I, I wouldn't have known what you do for a living in any way, shape or form from your Facebook. It is all about your family. And, you know, obviously we can't see anything right now, but you have a gorgeous family. However, before we get to your family, I, I do want to note that it's not the first thing that I noticed on your Facebook page, that Corvette Stingray. Oh my word. That mm-hmm. is. I, I, I was speechless. I told, I told Carlos, I'm like, I think that's the most beautiful Corvette I've ever seen. I've been obsessed with Corvette since I was a kid. I don't know why. Usually men are like the car people. I am the car person in this relationship and it's just beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> you should have a toy. Oh, it is. It is a beautiful toy. It's just gorgeous. Is it 1968 is my 69. guess? 69. 69. Hey, back, pretty close though. Just by looking at a Facebook picture, I feel pretty good about that. The backstory on that car, my college roommate's a guy named Charles Rom lives in Dallas. And uh, in college, he started rebuilding cars and he continued doing it really in amazing fashion, like ground up uh, wow. E-type restorations and uh, 38 Bentley and stuff. And one year he decided to rebuild a Corvette and my best friend growing up, his dad had an old Corvette. And Charles said, you know, Charles started rebuilding it and what you see Charles rebuilt. Um, But one, but, and I told him jokingly, I'm like, if you ever sell that, I'm buying it. So I got a text from him. I was in rural Ethiopia. I got a text from him and said, I'm buying, I'm selling the car. And I said, I'm buying the car. And I got home and my wife's like, like, what are you going to do with that car? Where are you going to put it? Where are you going to store it? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't get that far. Right. It doesn't even matter. I don't care. We'll figure it out. You're buying the car. That's, that's amazing. I I've always had this. It's like probably one of the oddest things about me. I've had this thing since I was a kid 
of wanting to rebuild a car. And I know nothing about cars. Like I, other than we're shipping, we're shipping the Corvette to the Adirondacks so that you have something in the summertime. There, oh, I would take that. That would, I'd be the talk of the town for sure with that thing. Yeah, talk talk Although, about nowhere to put it right now. No, I, we would find a place. I'd yeah. park in the lawn. <laughs> Although there are, I've seen, a, there are in the summer, there are a lot of Corvettes. That thinking about this, I, I saw one yesterday. Oh, I'm going to get a call in about a week. You're thinking about this. Uh, absolutely you know yeah you have saying. no you have no idea the can of worms you just opened alex i'm comfortable with that but anyway so uh, back to my question about your family you you absolutely put your family as your priority and i i'm talking to carlos about you before and i said am i just am i reading that wrong because it's you know social media or is this a guy who has like you do genuinely feel like he says he values his family and he actually values his family and he said absolutely so how have you managed to be present as a dad and a husband while running very significant corporations out there? Um, I, I think for me, what has happened is I have a really good partner um, uh, in my wife and, and, and where I'm going to go with this may not be where you think I'm going to go. Hmm. Um, uh, so we've been together for uh, 38 years. Um, and, uh, what's been very helpful for her, I think, I think, first of all, I'm not sure I've made all the right decisions in terms of my time allocations. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm sure that I've made some wrong decisions and I'm sure that I didn't prioritize the family at times. And I'm sure that I, I got on a plane and went to a meeting and in hindsight, maybe I didn't have to go to that meeting and maybe I could have stayed at home and, you know, and I've missed some kids' birthdays and I, so so I know that I haven't always made good decisions. Um, but what's been great in terms of my relationship with my, with my wife is A, she's been pretty honest with me when I haven't made the good decisions. And so that's a grounding factor in terms of thinking forward. Uh, but one of the things that I always did is if I could get home earlier, I would get home earlier, even if it meant I was on a 1 a.m. flight or a 2 a.m. flight. So I, I never kind of stayed and saw the cities and stuff like that. Um, and what, what she would constantly tell me when I was down on myself in terms of the decisions that I was making, she'd say, look, I mean, you've got a job. It takes you away sometimes, but when you're here, you're present. So when you're here, you're present with the kids. Um, and they know that they know that, uh, you love them. You try to make the right uh, choices. And she's not, she wouldn't, cause there's plenty of times where she told me I made wrong choices. Uh, so she's not, she wasn't just trying to like talk me up, but I think you can have two different risks in terms of balancing the kind of job that I have with the family, right? Uh, one risk is you don't go do the things that you need to do. Like there's certain things that as the CEO of a company I've signed up to do, I have to go do, it's my responsibility if I'm going to do this, uh, uh, do this job. Um, I think the second thing is to is to constantly be down on yourself that you're not doing enough um, and and carry a, a, a sense of guilt. And so she's been really good grounding for me in terms of um, uh, you have a job. It's important to you. It is part of your identity. It's something that you love to do. There are responsibilities that you have as part of that job. Um, but I'd also tell you that when you show up and you're here, you're present, you're, you know, you're with your kids, you're spending time with them. They know that you love them. So 
that's really kind of my summary. Uh, uh, I, like I said, I'm not sure I always made the right decisions, but I had a partner that held me accountable and, and talked me out of feeling guilty when I might've felt guilty. Because guilt doesn't solve anything. True. Yeah, that, that, that is true. I, I, there's two things you said in there, Alex. One was you said when you were home, you were present and available for your kids. <clears throat> I know in it, looking back in my past, that was not the case. By the way, and, I'm, I, I'm not saying I was always that way. I'm just sure. saying she would, she would tell me, I can see that you're trying to do that. Um, I certainly screwed that up too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess where I'm going with that is I, I talk to people a lot and some of the clients that I coach when they say, I just can't turn it off. Like it's, it's some ailment that they have, you know, acquired or something like that and they just can't shake it. So I am just curious, like how, because it is a challenge, right? When you're in a, when you're running a business or you own a business, whatever that is, um, even just in everyday life, doesn't even have to be work-related. There's stressors or things that can invade our thoughts. So what do you do now to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here in this space, whether it's with my wife or my children or the closest of friends, I am going to leave that behind because I can't really do anything about it now. And where I'm supposed to be mentally and emotionally is here in this space. What do you do? And, and, you know, what tips could you maybe share with our audience on, Hey, try this. Um, I'm going to answer it. And then I want to come back to one other thought on the kind of work, work life challenge, especially when you've got a traveling job. Um, I, I don't work after dinner. Right. So, I mean, if I'm home, uh, and, and we're able to sit down and have dinner. And, you know, at this point, two of my kids are out of the house. One of my kids is senior in high school. She's got a job. She's got a car. We've got one kid that's a sophomore. And so they've got a, they've got their own life, you know, and they're doing stuff on three of the five uh, weekday nights. Um, but if, if the day ends, then for me, the day, uh, the day ends. Right. Um, and then I am an early riser. So even like on the weekend, um, I'm, if I have to do any work, it's pretty much done before anybody wakes up, right? And so that's a little bit of what I've, of what I've tried to do. I do want to come back to something, though. Um, uh, you talked about we knew each other at BMC. Uh, at BMC, I got a, I got a gift from, uh, uh, from a guy named Chris who worked for me. And it was during the dot-com crash, we had to restructure the company. And during that time, we, we had to fire a lot of people. I had to use, I had to use the term layoff because it sounds so uh, antiseptic, right? Yeah. But like we had to fire people because the business was deteriorating and it was terrible, right? You know, obviously terrible for them. But if you think about back then, your, your healthcare was connected to your, you know, to your job. And so you're firing people, their kids are sick. You're going through this whole conversation. And uh, that night, and Chris, uh, was the president of the order of the Carmelites, which I didn't know what that was at the time. It's the prayer order of the Catholic church. And we sat down afterwards. I'm like, Chris, I'm, I'm destroyed by this. And he said, um, he said, you need to understand something that uh, every person that you talk to has a story about their life that's being written and you are not the author of the story. Mm. Uh, what, what you are and the minute you take on authorship, you're playing God. And he said, Alex, I know God and I know you and you ain't God. 
<laughs> you can't take over the authorship of the story of somebody's life. You can be a great actor in the story of the life. And so the conversations sometimes I would have with my sons would be conversation in terms of, look, like um, we've, there are people in the military that are serving that are gone for six, eight months at a time, guys. Like I'm gone three or four days during the week. But also like this is part of your story right? This is, this is your story that you're in that's shaping you. Um, and uh, my presence or my absence is part of, of the story, but, but I can't take over the authorship of the story of your life and somehow take ownership for um, my presence or absence uh, 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 being a hundred percent of what creates the story of your life. Does that make sense? And there was a lot of freedom in what Chris gave me to understand my role in the story of somebody else's life. Yeah, I, that does make a lot of sense. And, and we, <clears throat> I think another way, and, and please feel free to correct me if I'm oversimplifying is I can't, a lot of times, and over the last two years, I think if it's taught us anything is we were never really in control in the first place, but I can't control all the things that are going to happen to me. I can control how I respond and how I let that, what impact I allow that or what space I allow that to take up in my life. Yeah. And I, and so back to the, to your kids, they have the, like, like, are we giving our kids agency or not? Like are we giving our kids freedom uh, or not to make these choices? And so, and then you start to see it as your kids get older, you realize, oh, they're not a mini me or a mini my wife. They're a hundred percent their own personality, which is not a blend of our personality. It's, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so it just a long, a long answer to your question and, and about, you know, spending time with your family and maybe I'm just justifying it in my own mind. But the two things for me is having somebody that, that told me authentically when I shouldn't feel guilty. And then also understanding that everybody's got a story in their life. That's got good things in it and challenging things uh, in it. And, and they have to overcome those things. They can't become a victim to those things. Yeah. And I, I would just add that along with having somebody who could tell you honestly things you had to have a willingness to listen and to receive that without you know I think that that's yeah that's a that's a key piece of it yeah and and I know early on well not early on but you know a decade ago I was in that space where I wasn't willing to listen to that and now one of the things that Suzanne will say to me if we do move a boundary is you know, we're having the conversation and I, I can't think of one time where I've said, Hey, I've got to do, go here or be there recently where it's been like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And obviously we're in a bit different spot because we are empty nesters. And now she, a lot of times Suzanne will be able to travel with me, but I think just having the respect to have that discussion instead of just say, Hey, this is how it's going to go down. And you know, I'm not willing to listen to a, a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, like, it's hard work to make a marriage last for 38 years yeah. and have people still have strong, independent personalities, right? And part of that hard work is exactly what you said, uh, Carlos, where I wasn't always this way, but kind of getting to the point of, 
uh, okay, you have a point of view that's different than mine and I have to park my agenda and actually listen to you. I may not agree with you, but I can't, but I can't stiff arm the feedback. Mm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when it comes to work, you, because you mentioned- by, by the way, when my wife wants my opinion, she'll give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's a, that's a, that's a great t-shirt right there or, or a coffee mug. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm, that may come up uh, later down the road here in the Adirondack household. Um, but you mentioned it a little bit when you talked about work and you talked about some of the discussions with your wife. I find that so many professionals, um, especially men, find their identity and their worthiness in their jobs, in their careers, in their job titles. I know I did when I was running annuitus, if the company was doing well, I felt great. If we had a bad quarter, I felt awful, uh, wasn't really great to live with. So mm-hmm. why, why do you think that it's such an easy trap or why so many individuals are looking to what we do as the source for our identity and worthiness? Um, you know, Carlos, this is a great question. I've had the same coach for 15 years. Her name is Lynn Rousseau. She's done a, uh, she's a great friend and she's also been a good coach and a good leadership coach for me and different teams. And it was probably uh, 14 years ago, probably 14 years ago, we were, we were having a conversation and the, the feedback that she gave me was, Look, I think when you look in the mirror, all you see is a scorecard, right? Mm-hmm. Did this, did this, didn't do this, didn't do this. And then I'm like, yeah, well, that's true. When, when, I, when I look in the mirror, I look at, I, I see a scorecard. And, and she said, you're going to be far more successful in your career if instead of focusing on what you're doing, you could focus on who you are and who you're becoming. And so now I'm not saying I get that right hundred percent of the time, Carlos, but, but when, when, when I start seeing the scorecard, I try to go back to, okay, my swing thought has to be, uh, who am I right now? Uh, who do I want to become and, and where am I going on that, on that journey of becoming what that's allowed me to do, Carlos uh, and Suzanne is, is whole, like, I still want to accomplish our business objectives. I, like all those things I, I'm super driven by, but for me, it allows me to hold it a little bit more loosely uh, because it's not the entire identity. Right. And, and that was just such great coaching. And it's been such a great swing thought to me is, is anytime the identity starts feeling like it's getting attached to the scorecard, which it will, you know, cause, uh, cause I'm built that way for me to kind of take a step back and, and, and ask myself, okay, right now um, on your journey of who you hope to become, like, where are you? What's the next step? So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's been, that's great coaching for me. And it's also been a great um, uh, uh, defense against a, a, a The other thing I think you got to do is not feel guilty for how you built. Right. So, so if you're a driven person, like, and you're driven and and you, and and you like winning and you like accomplishing things, like the worst thing that you can do is look in the mirror and say, you're bad for being driven. 
Now, the right question might be, why do you think you're driven, right? And then maybe that can start to bridge into, okay, who are you as a leader? Who do you want to become as a, uh, as a leader? But once again, I think, I think feeling bad for how you're wired never helped anybody. True. I think that's excellent advice. I think who we, who we are is, will always be more important than what we do. Yeah, as you as you say a lot, uh, your job title is the least interesting thing about you. <laughs> um, and I, I, I mean, I'm a very driven person. I'm very competitive. Um, I mean, even even against myself. Somebody asked me the other day, "Are you running the half marathon again?" I'm like, the only thing that'll get me to train again is I hated the time that I turned in last year. So, I I get that. Curious to for you on because you are very driven. Uh, clearly, where does contentment sit in that space? Because I've had, I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of reading on contentment. And it's interesting, some people will use, well, I, I'm too driven to be content. And I, I don't believe there's a either or there, but I'm curious just on your take on that. Mm, good question. Uh, and not to be argumentative, but I would, I might make a distinction between uh, contentment and peace. Mm, okay. Right? So as I'll give you an example, uh, I like riding a road bike, um, at the, at the end of a two or three hour ride that, you know, right now I live in Salt Lake city. That's got a lot of uphill and, and I finish that. Um, I, I'm, I'm in a state of, of a tremendous amount of peace. Right. And so, so what I've always told my boys is, uh, everybody's got a recipe and you got to learn your recipe, right? And, and the recipe would be the people that you hang out with, the actions you take, the things that you do. Like this, this whole thing is a recipe at, at what uh, can allow you to feel settled. Um, and so, uh, so go, go kind of figure out what your recipe is. My recipe, uh, I'm not saying somebody else's should include this, but, but my recipe includes the other side of some, you know, a long bike ride or something like that. So I'm, I'm not sure I seek contentment necessarily, and maybe that's a bad thing, but I, but I do seek peace and try to figure out what's the recipe that gives me peace. Yeah. Wow. That I'm, that's my nugget that I'm going to be, I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of the afternoon, because I know during really, really difficult years, I felt this, like I'm supposed to be content, you know, I, and it's funny that you brought up the, the military dads and moms that are gone for so long. We were living in, at the time in a military town. And so I was faced with those people a lot and just thought, okay, well, it's not as bad as that. And just this, you know, and from my spiritual upbringing, you know, being content, being content. So I like quote unquote, chose to be content, but I was not at peace mm. in my soul at all. And so that's just a really, I think, profound way to view that. And again, I'll be, I'll be thinking about that for a while now. Yeah. We'll be talking about that. Yeah, tonight. for sure. Uh, for sure. Uh, I, I do like that and I'm not, yeah, I think contentment for me <clears throat> has been something that I, cause I, I do, I don't view the same them as the same to your point. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think peace is for sure something we need more of, um, especially just individually. I think if we all sought those things, 
that broadest piece in our minds and our souls, spiritually, emotionally, our society would, would surely look most much different. And I, I do. I mean, I, I talk to people who do things that bring them peace. And I just kind of think like that, that would be torture for me. That's the most miserable <laughs> thing, but yeah. a bike ride would be great. I feel the mm-hmm. same way after a good run or, or a long, long bike ride as well. I think the other thing that we got to realize is that um, you, you can't live a great story if you're a hundred percent at peace all the time. Right. Right. Because every story's got joy. Every story's got pain. You don't seek the pain. None of us want the pain. None of us are like, oh yeah, give me some pain so that I can have some joy. But like, how do you, how do you recognize light if there's not dark? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you recognize joy if there's not pain? You know, how do you recognize peace if there's not uh, unsettledness? Right. And so I think that the, the, I don't like that stuff. So I'm not this masochist that goes, Oh, let me go get that. Cause that would be fun. But I think, but I think understanding the, the, um, uh, the opposites in life uh, exist so that you can recognize the good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the whole premise of the book. No mud, no Lotus is true. Joy does it's, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but it's a great <laughs> book. But to find true joy, you do have to go through pain. And I think that's part of, and again, I'm kind of going way off topic. We could probably do a whole nother podcast. One of the things I've seen in society is, is we do everything we can to avoid pain. We medicate, we find addictions, we overprescribe. It, it is- Overparent. Yeah, we, we bulldoze parent, great point. And so not only to, which we want to eliminate any kind of tension, let alone pain. And because we don't sit in that as uncomfortable as it is, then we're always in this joy, thrill seeking state as well, because we don't even know what joy and happiness really. But who's going to read a book that starts with Bob woke up today and had coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's why I kind of come back to this notion of, a lot of people set goals, but not very many people are willing to try to live a great story. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and like I said, nobody seeks pain. Nobody seeks tragedy. Right. We, don't, we don't want that. But if you understand it within the arc of a great story and you think to yourself, you'd never go watch a movie that doesn't have conflict, that doesn't have uh, difficult characters, that doesn't have a hero's journey to it. Like, like that's what we want. Uh, uh, so we might as well accept that that's the best story that we can live. Absolutely. Uh, so switching gears a little bit back in 2011, you and your wife made very significant life changing decisions. So tell our audience, that was the beginning of the 10 year test. There you go. (laughs) Tell our audience more about that, how it impacted you, um, relationships, your family, et cetera. Um, we were, uh, at dinner with some friends and, um, and my, the husband of the couple asked a really important question, which was if you were going to give, and it wasn't money, what would you do? And, uh, I was thinking about that for a couple of weeks and uh, I was in my office and I thought, it's not like we don't have enough money or have enough house or have enough love. And I walked in the breakfast room and I told Brittany, that question that Brandon asked, like, I think I'd adopt. And she goes, oh my gosh, that's, 
exactly what I've been thinking too. Wow. Oh, wow. We're like, okay, we need to talk about this. Um, and we decided to adopt. She's uh, part Hispanic and kind of, you know, some people are called to adopt domestically, some internationally, both are, you know, not one's better than the other for whatever reason we were felt called to adopt uh, internationally. Because of her heritage, she kind of thought we might adopt from uh, somewhere in Central America or Latin America. I was serving on a nonprofit that does reforestation around the world and spending some time in Ethiopia and I had fallen in love with the kids there. Uh, which is odd for me because I didn't, I wasn't really a kid person to begin with, but, um, and we, our boys at the time were uh, uh, you know, 15 and 11. Um, and so we decided to adopt and uh, uh, through that process, the, the agency asked us if we would adopt uh, sisters um, that were older than we thought we were going to. Um, and uh, we adopted uh, Mescaram, who uh, calls herself Remy, and Terriqua, who calls herself Tara. And we adopted them when they were eight and five years old. And the best way to frame it is every, every year of your life, you got joy and pain. And for a long period of time, the joy was joyier and the pain was, uh, was painier. And earlier when we talked about my older daughter, you know, all of our kids are amazing. Uh, what I'm proud of her grit is, you know, when the girls got here, they, they didn't know any, any English. They'd never been to school in their lives. They didn't even know what time was. So they didn't know what a minute was, an hour was, a day was. You know, you take an eight-year-old who comes to our country like that and then graduates, won the Utah State Debate Championship. Wow. And, graduates with honors, gets accepted to George Mason. You know, that Angela Duckworth's book about grit, that's just grit, you know? Uh, I could, there's a, there's a gajillion stories I could tell you about lessons. I will tell you one and then I'll, I'll shut up because I know we're taking a lot of time. One of the most important lessons I had in my life was the first day that I took Remy to school. We were in a public school in Austin and so they had to take our kids. Right. And, and once again, here's this eight year old kid, never been to school, didn't know any English. And she's showing up at school and I'm walking into the school and I am feeling guilty. I'm like, we made this decision. We're putting this situation on the school. They're going to have to work around it. I, like I was really feeling guilty about this and I couldn't have been more wrong in my life. Um, I walked in and it just happened that the administration, it was Bridgepoint Elementary um, and uh, Brad was the principal at the time. And, you, you know, if you're if you have boys, you get to know the principal pretty well. So, <laughs> okay. so we knew Brad pretty well. Um, and uh, and it just so happened that the administration of the school just happened to be in the office. It wasn't planned or anything like that. I walked in and their eyes lit up. They're like, let's scare them. We have been waiting for you. Mm. And, and the happiness that I saw, I mean, I can tell you all I'm happy for you that you have a great house in the Adirondacks. And I'm genuinely happy for you. But there was a different happiness. They had happiness because they, in, in what they did for a living, they were going to participate in the restoration of an orphan. Mm. And what I realized at that moment is, I wasn't asking something of them. 
I was inviting them into an amazing opportunity. And it just changed the way I thought about stuff uh, ever since then. And they could decline the opportunity or they could accept the opportunity, but they were gonna have an amazing uh, uh, opportunity. And they did great. My wife came home a few days later and she was crying with joy. And I'm like, what's going on? And she goes, look at this schedule. I just sat down with the counselor. They've got Remy in kindergarten. They asked her to help the kids but that's so that she could actually learn the days of the week. And then she's in first grade here and second grade here. And, uh, and she's with her class during recess. I'm like, like what happened? And I'll probably get teared up when I tell you this. She goes, well, she said, brought, Brad brought them. This is a big school, like six or 700 kids. She goes, Brad brought them together in a meeting and said, we are going to catch that girl up. Mm. Gonna... Wow. And it's so awesome that I, I whoever brad is um i hope he gets a chance to listen to him because that is the kind of friend administrator mm. lover a kid you just want in a school every school should have who says i want to be a champion for this kid because every single one of them has amazing potential and giftedness and whatever it's going to take for us to do that so what a gift for you oh totally your family and your girls totally and that and that pivot for me of I'll never feel guilty about asking for something, some somebody to do something. I'm just inviting them into an opportunity. Absolutely. If they want the opportunity, that's great. If they don't want the opportunity, I'm not going to be offended. I, I love that. That I, I literally just wrote that mm -hmm. down. Inviting people into an amazing opportunity, and what a better opportunity than to impact the life of a child. And yeah. and honestly, you know, all of our lives are, are journeys, and we're not meant to live in isolation. And so I hope whoever's listening, you know, go back to the people who might've asked for help and say, am I, am I missing out on an amazing opportunity to help just a fellow human being, a brother, a sister, a family member, a close friend mm -hmm. through an amazing opportunity. And, and man, oh man, that is, I love that. We are definitely I want your daughter on our podcast after she's gone for a year because it's going to be awesome. But I would tell you, like, the 10-year test really is, you know, learn a long time ago, you can't learn to swim in the front yard. So you, you kind of, you read all these books about adoption and everything, and then you try to glue together, you know, a 15-year-old boy, an 11-year-old boy, an 8-year-old girl, and a 5-year-old girl. Um, and I would tell you, the last year when we had a trip to Hawaii, and we were together as a family, it really was the, and, and not with anybody being bad people or anything like that. I, me and my wife watched our children sit together and talk and we're like, we thought it was going to take a month. It only took 10 years, but <laughs> I, love, I it. love it. And yeah. that, you know, every family has its challenges and, you know, adoption is absolutely a beautiful thing. And, but sometimes um, if there are biological kids in the family, they're the ones that kind of like we don't talk about them a lot and it impacts them it impacts super every member on, of the family super hard on the boys yes you know, hard on the boys and and like i said you it's kind of what you said earlier carlos all the coaching in the world we, we had great like the um the uh the caseworker you know like they're explaining all this stuff to us and we're like yeah 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 yeah. we read the book we got it we know what we're doing yeah <laughs> And uh, we'll be fine. And then, um, but I, I will tell you this, um, 
it created some of the best conversations uh, with my sons that I could ever have. Mm. You know, when your son looks at you and says, I don't understand. I've, I've been in this family my whole life and I don't understand how you can uh, love them. Uh, and, and then you have the conversation, which is, but I don't love you any more than the day you were born. Like there's nothing in this world you can do that's going to make me love you more or less than I, I love you. And so there's a lot of conflict, a lot of extreme conflict that occurred um, that allowed for some real genuine conversations that I think over time, um, you know, has created some authenticity that I, uh, I'd like to think would have been there, but I don't know if it would have been there because once again, I didn't, we didn't seek the conflict that occurred in the family through the adoption process. We didn't know it was going to happen. Um, and it was really hard. And we, we laid awake one night, I recall looking at each other and looking at the ceiling and the conversation was, man, if God didn't end this, we really screwed up. Not because we didn't want the girls, not because we didn't love the girls, not because we didn't want them in the family, but just the amount of to your point, uh, the amount of, of conflict that it had created that that we we didn't know ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Like, man, if we weren't supposed to do this, we've really dorked it up. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think you know, and we we know a lot of adopted families, and it's there's a lot that doesn't get talked about in the books. I think it's getting better because it's it's supposed to be this beautiful thing like you're adopting these kids who've lost their families and so any anything that is heavy and hard there's a lot of guilt about talking about it or feeling certain feelings and and it's just i think it's helped a lot of adoptive families to just have places where they can have more honest conversations about what's going well, on and say things to other adopted families that you could never say in public. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You know, it kind of, but if you might like, like you got little Tara, she's, she's five years old. She lost her mom at three. She's been mm-hmm. living with her sister on the streets of Owasa. She's had a really, really hard life. Like, why would you expect her all of a sudden to be super happy and just be right. like, Oh, thank you. Gigantic white dude for saving me. Like, yeah. like this exactly. is not, like this is not what's going through her mind. <laughs> right. No, not at all. Nor should it have been, you no. know, it's, that's just not even, uh, not even realistic. So it is. But, but there are some really special moments. Like if you think about it, when your biological kids are attached to you, they're not sentient beings. Mm-hmm. So we attach to our girls and they attach to us when we were both sentient beings. And there was one moment where t- little Tara was on my lap and I was reading a magazine and we, you know, we use the words, I love you, but I, did it translate? I knew what it was in Amharic. Like, I don't, did it translate? Was it just a greeting? Mm-hmm. Um, and she was learning English and, and she looks up at me and I'm reading the magazine. She goes, now she doesn't have an accent. At the time they called me Dodd, like D-O-D. Aww. She goes, I, I love you, Dodd. And I looked at her and I said, I, I, I love you too, Tara. And you could see the moment mm. she looked back at me. She goes, no, I love you. Like you could see there was, that was the attachment moment. And, and although you attach to your biological kids, but like what a huge joyful gift that was to go through. Wow. That's awesome. 
That's that. What a beautiful moment. Thanks for sharing that with us. All right. I know we're running, uh, uh, we're running up on time here. So one question we ask of all of our guests <clears throat> as life design looks different for everybody. What are one to two things that you, one to two small shifts, shall we say, that you think people could make starting today to start to design a life they love to live? I'm just going to go back to kind of the two um, uh, swing thoughts for me, right? The one is uh, 51% of the time, can you focus on who you want to become and who you, you know, who you are today and who you're becoming at least 51% of the time, you're not going to do it hundred percent of the time, but at least 51% of the time, can you think about who you are and who you're becoming versus what you're doing and what you're achieving hard to do. And then the second, the second is, can you see your life uh, and ask to live your life as it's, as if it's a great story. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're going to like the pain that you go through, but, but I think it allows you to put it in perspective in terms of um, it's just it's just part of an amazing an amazing uh, story and and you live your life like you're trying to live a great story. Great advice, great advice, Alex. Thank you so much. I know well, you've got a lot of Carlos, Suzanne. Great to meet you. Um, Carlos will be calling me later about shipping the Corvette up to absolutely. Yeah, I'll have to uh, find a trailer and a truck uh, for uh, maybe maybe an early birthday present. Her birthday is <laughs> not till February, but I don't think she'll mind. Nope. So uh, it's an everyday gift. Well, we will. Uh, we want to thank Alex for joining us. You've given us a lot to think about. We're going to mm -hmm. call this a wrap on this episode of the Life Design Podcast. And we hope that above all, you choose to make it a great day. You've been listening to the Life Design Podcast. You can find other episodes and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. If you want to learn more about our life design services, please visit us at www.yourlifedesignjourney.com.